0: Matthew chapter 16, and beginning in verse 1, says, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test Him, they asked Him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak to you about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that He did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. those are a French atheist named Voltaire that you're probably aware of. He is an interesting man. All through his life, he was very hard-hearted against the gospel and against the existence of God, and he, and he argued against it vehemently. At one time, he claimed that the Christianity would be obsolete by the end of his life, but it's kind of interesting that after he died, his house ended up being used as a place to distribute Bibles. And so it's kind of ironic that how history would, or the future would unfold. But he was, he was very boisterous against God and against Christianity until he got right to the end of his life. At the end of his life, he spent the last couple of months of his life in a real fit between two things. Part of the time he was lashing out at the existence of God and, and part of the time he was, he was almost begging for it. And so he would go back and forth between wanting to throw himself upon the mercy of God and fighting against God's even existence. And it was really a sad end because in the end, his final words were that he was forsaken by God and man. And so he died in the hardness of his heart. He made this statement. He said, Even if a miracle should be wrought in the open marketplace before a thousand sober witnesses, I would rather mistrust my senses than admit a miracle. You see what he's saying there? Even if a, uh, in a miracle happened out in a marketplace in broad daylight, out in the open, with him viewing it, because he said he'd rather mistrust his senses, with over a thousand sober witnesses, so testified by eyewitnesses, he said, I would rather mistrust my senses, in other words, deny my own eyes, my own ears, than to acknowledge the reality of the miracle. That's hard. Now, the reason that I bring that up before you today is that's what we see in the world around us with a lot of skepticism about Christianity about Jesus Christ about the existence of God because the evidence is there and it's exactly what Jesus was dealing with as he was dealing with the religious leaders which is what we find ourselves at the beginning of this passage with the the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming before Christ to challenge him but all around this we've talked about it even last week you remember we talked about how the gospels record so many miracles done by Jesus in so many different places over this time period that it is impossible for them to be wrong. It cannot be anything made up. It cannot because it would be too easy to substantiate the falseness of it with all the detail that's involved in the Gospels. Well, that's the context that we're in coming up to this point. Well, all the amazing amount of miracles that Matthew's laid out that Jesus has done from casting out demons to walking on water to calming storms, causing the blind to see lame to walk, and even those passages that we looked at last week that just say that He just healed everybody in this whole area that they brought to him that was sick. And so all those amazing miracles, and you have the Pharisees come before Jesus and challenge him. Well, they're in the midst of a, quite a predicament because, because of the signs, because of the miracles that Jesus has been performing, people are taking notice. In fact, as we look at some of the response of people to the miracles of Jesus, we find in John chapter 7, verse 31, it says, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? In John chapter 6, just a chapter earlier, it says, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. In John chapter 9, it says, Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among the people. John chapter 11 says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And in John chapter 12, it says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Because of all the signs, the crowds of people are saying, this has got to be the Messiah. Right? I mean, when the Messiah comes, would He do more than this? And so there starts to become this division because the Pharisees are adamant about, no, He's not the guy. He's not the Christ. Don't listen to Him. But the people are saying, who do we believe? You or our own eyes? Because it sure looks like Him. It's got to be Him. If it's not Him, if He's just a sinner like the rest of us, how can He do all the things that He's doing? How can He raise dead people to life again? I can't do that. Well, it's in the midst of all that that the Pharisees are very closed in their mindset toward Him. Just like Voltaire. Voltaire said, If a miracle happened in broad daylight in the marketplace with a thousand sober witnesses to look on it, I'd rather mistrust my own eyes. That's exactly what these Pharisees are doing. We're seeing this hardness of heart. No matter what miracles were done before them, but rather than softening their heart, it just hardened their heart further. You know, it's like Pharaoh back in Egypt. Moses goes before Pharaoh, and even Moses asked God before he went, he said, what do I do? If they tell me who sent you, what do I do? And God gave him miracles to do, to show, to prove that Moses was sent by God. So Moses went before Pharaoh and did miracles. And what did Pharaoh do? He hardened his heart all the more. Each miracle that happens takes out an Egyptian God. Each plague that God brings upon Egypt and with each miracle that happens, Pharaoh's heart becomes harder still. And so all the proof and the evidence before Pharaoh, rather than softening his heart and recognizing that God is God, he hardened his heart all the further. Same in the days of Jesus. Those people with the miracles happening right in front of their eyes, rather than acknowledge that Jesus was from God, they would rather attribute it to Satan himself. Well, as we look at this passage, the hardness of their heart is revealed in these three areas. First, it was revealed in unprincipled cooperation. Now, let me explain what that means. As we start out the passage, it's just a simple little statement at the beginning of who's coming to Jesus. And who is it? It's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they are both leaders in the nation of Israel. It's like the two parties of Israel. You'll see other groups mixed in here once in a while. You'll see scribes. You'll see Herodians mixed in with the group. But the two dominant groups within the kind of political makeup of Israel are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees are your more traditional. They're your more conservative group among Israel. They're the people that are trying to protect the traditions of the rabbis, and these are the people that were all hung up over hand washings and little details and that kind of stuff. That's the Pharisees. They were highly educated, but they also usually had employment outside of what they did as a Pharisee. You see that in the Apostle Paul's life. Remember, the Apostle Paul was climbing the ladder very quickly as a Pharisee. He was becoming a leader with among the Pharisees, but he was also had a trade. He was a tent maker. And we see him use that later in his life as a missionary. So that's what the Pharisees were like. The Sadducees usually had control of the priesthood and the the ongoings around the temple. And so they gained their power more from that. The Pharisees were probably a little bit more powerful with the popularity of the people. But the Sadducees had a little stronger position in their control of the temple and the priesthood and the chief priest. And so they, they were your aristocrats. They were more wealthy. They were more liberal, much more so, than the Pharisees. They didn't They didn't even believe in things like immortality. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in angels. And so these were kind of your liberal theologians of the day. So you have the nation of Israel, and among their leadership, they're divided between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and these two groups hated each other. You can even see them later in the apostles Paul's life when he's on trial. And he's brought on trial. He recognizes that there's Pharisees and Sadducees in the group. And so he stands up and he says, you know what? I'm on trial today. I'm on trial today for the resurrection of the dead. And all of a sudden the Pharisees said, we don't find anything wrong with him. Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees had an ongoing argument about this resurrection of the dead thing. And so the Apostle Paul actually used that to his advantage at that point. So you have among them, it would be like in the news, they're always talking about the schism in our country between the, the Democrats and the Republicans. And and the you have the more conservative on the Republican side and more liberal on the Democrat side. And you have this constant friction. And a lot of times with legislation, it almost looks like if the... If it's written by a Republican, then no Democrat can support it. And if it's written by a Democrat, then no Republican can support it. And that's very much how it was between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But here you got these two groups showing up together they're coming together to cooperate to get rid of Jesus. They disagree on just about everything else, but they're going to come together to try to get rid of Jesus. And why? Why? What's the what's the principle behind their actions here? What's the what's the principle that they both agree on that is concerns Jesus that they need to get rid of him? What has he been doing? He's been healing people. Well, we can't have that. So they got to get rid of him, right? Because he's healing people. Think of the dent that he made in their health care plan in Israel in that day. As he traveled around from village to village and small town to small town and major cities and and all over the the whole place and people would bring people out, sometimes even just out to touch the fringe of his garment and they would be healed. Boy, he had to make a dent in their health care problem. He's been feeding the hungry. He fed 5,000 on one occasion, 4,000 on another occasion. He's had people come to him that were blind and received sight, which means now they can probably go back to work or go to work for the first time in their life think of the practical advantages that Israel got just during Christ's short ministry would have made an amazing amount of of difference within their society. And they're all good things. Can you think of a downside to having a guy that was demon-possessed not be demon-possessed anymore? Now you don't have to fear that guy. Keep your children away from him in the neighborhood. <laughs> and So what's the what's the principle? The one, what do they need to get rid of Jesus for? Well, it boils down to one thing. You claim to be God. But, and that's true, he was claiming to be God. But, if you can raise the dead, cure leprosy, you might have something to talk about there. It might give some indication of who you are. But see, they, they, these two people that are sworn enemies of other. other, These two groups that hated one another will come together to cooperate just to get rid of Jesus. That shows some hardness of heart. They don't have a common core principle that they're both standing up for. They don't have some good cause that they're rallying behind. They just feel threatened by Jesus and His popularity among the people because of the signs and the miracles He's been accomplishing. And so they want to get rid of Him. And that shows a real hardness of heart. When you're so glued to your own power that you're willing to leave people sick, leave people demon-possessed, leave people hungry, leave people with leprosy, rather than learn how to get along with this guy, you are pretty locked into your own business. But not only do we see that there's an unprincipled cooperation, we also see that there's a dishonest motivation. Because they come before Jesus and it says that their motivation was to test Him. As they bring this request to, to perform a sign from heaven, it appears that what they're looking for is something done up in the stars, up in the sky. They're looking for some miraculous... Feet. The Bible recognizes that their motivation was actually to test Him. I assume by this, they don't assume that He's going to perform this miraculous feat. They probably don't even think that He can, but they want to ask Him in front of everybody else so that everybody else sees that, oh, see, He can't do it. He's not who He said He was. So they're trying to discredit Him. They're not coming with an honest and sincere request or an honest and sincere question. They're just trying to take Him down. They did that continually. They're always gathering together the right groups and then asking questions that they feel are those kind of questions that you can't get out of it unscathed. Kind of like that old question about, you know, have you stopped beating your wife? How do you answer that? If you say yes, it means you used to beat her. If you say no... (laughs) <laughs> There's not a good answer to that question. You can't. That's not a yes or no answer. Well, that's what they're trying to do to Jesus all the time. They'd, they'd gather the different leaders, the, the Herodians, which were patriotic towards the Roman Empire. They'd gather the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They'd get them all kind of together that were all enemies of one another. And then they'd ask Jesus a question like, do we pay taxes or not? If you say yes then you satisfy the Herodians, but you anger the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you say no, then you anger the Herodians, but you're okay with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So you're in trouble either way. They're always trying to do those kind of things with Jesus. Their motivations are dishonest. And so they come before Him and they say, show us a sign from heaven. Now, you know what I love about this is that whenever Jesus is asked for a sign, keep in mind that He's done multitudes of signs on His own volition. And there were signs that you can't fake or make up. In the midst of multitudes of signs, whenever somebody comes and asks Jesus for a sign, like we've already seen happen in Matthew chapter 12, two things always happen. One, He rebukes them for their hard-heartedness, for the wickedness of their heart. Secondly, He does not give them what they ask for, but He does point them to what is already there. Well, let me explain it this way. On a number of different occasions, Jesus is approached by the religious leaders and told, show us a sign for one reason or another. At this point... Jesus says, it's a wicked generation that asks for a sign. Now, why is that? Well, because it's, it's a lack of faith. It's not trust in God. They're not coming to be worshipful of God. They're coming to test Him. So He says, a wicked generation seeks after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it except the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah that He's referring to is that when Jonah, we learned about this in adult Sunday school this morning. In fact, all of our Sunday schools learned about it. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. And to tell the people, God's gonna destroy this place in 40 days unless you guys repent. And Jonah didn't wanna go, so he ran from the presence of the Lord and went the opposite direction, went to Tarshish. And so God had a storm come up, and the people, the sailors on the boat said, man, why is this storm here? Why are we going through this? And they drew straws, cast lots, and they said, it's Jonah's fault. And they said, well, what are we going to do with you? And Jonah said, you've got to throw me overboard. And they didn't want to do that, so they tried rowing harder, throwing out the cargo. That didn't work. Finally, they threw Jonah overboard. And God had prepared a great fish to come up and swallow Jonah. And for three days and three nights, Jonah was in the belly of the whale down in the depths of the ocean. And he repented and he cried out to God. And then God had him vomited out on the dry land. And he went to Nineveh and he preached and Nineveh repented. So what's the sign of Jonah? Just as Jesus pointed out in other days, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, after which He will come up out of the earth alive. It's the Gospel. And that's what Jesus does each time that He's asked for a sign. He's asked here, what's the sign? Jesus says, Jonah. Jonah's the sign. I'm going to be three days, three nights in the belly of the earth, and I'm going to come out of it. When Jesus cleansed the temple, and it's recorded in John chapter two, and Jesus goes in and he overturns tables, the money changers' tables, and he drives out animals, he drives out people out of the temple. Jesus accomplishes all that, and the leaders come up to him, and he says, and they say this: What sign do you give to show us your authority to do this? In other words, who do you think you are coming into the temple and flipping over our money tables and driving out our animals that we were selling? What's the sign of your authority? And Jesus tells them. Tear down this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. Of course, they're locked into literalism here. And they're saying, what are you talking about? It took us our forefathers 40 years to build this temple, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? But by the time it got to Jesus' death, they put the two things together, and they said, you know what? He said He was going to rise again in three days. So they understood it in the long run to be about His body also. So Jesus told them, they said, what sign do you give us of your authority? Jesus said, tear down this temple. Three days later, will rise back up. That's your sign. Then in John chapter 6, same thing. They asked Jesus for a sign. He goes into this whole lecture. They said, what's, what's a sign? Show us, show us the sign of who you are. They, and then they compared him to Moses. They often did that. They said, you know what? Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. What do you have? We know Moses came from God because of the manna. Jesus says, Moses didn't give you that manna. God gave you that manna in the wilderness. And then He went on to say that that manna was just a type it was a picture of what was going to happen and he said you know what the true bread from heaven is he says I am the true bread from heaven just as God sent down manna sent down bread from heaven to feed you during your days of wandering in the wilderness I am the true bread from heaven and then by the time you get all the way to the end of it he says that bread is my flesh that bread is my flesh And so he did the same thing there. He said, the bread is my body, which is going to be offered up for you, which is going to be put to death for you, and then risen again from the dead for you to have eternal life. So every time he was asked for a sign, Jesus gave him the gospel. He went to his death and resurrection on the cross. What is the point? They're saying, show us a sign from heaven. He's saying, I am the sign from heaven. Some of the signs that you got before, like the man in the wilderness, pointed to me as the sign from heaven. He could have even gone to the star of Bethlehem. That was a sign in the heavens and it pointed right to my birth. Look at all these miracles that I've done before you over and over and over. All those things have one thing in common and it is me. I am the sign from heaven. That's what He's pointing out to them. But these people and their motivation, they're they're coming before Him and they're trying to trip Him up. They're trying to entrap Him in a question. They're saying, show us a sign. That brings us right into our last point. The last area where we see their hard-heartedness is their persistent ignorance. If you can imagine with all these miracles happening around them and in front of them, to turn around and say, show us some proof. (laughs) It's comical. If it wasn't so sad, show us some proof. Okay, so you can walk on water. You can calm storms. You can cause blind people to see. healed leprosy. That was a Benny. You know, you, you, you can cast out demons. So you showed authority over the demonic realm, the spiritual realm. You calm storms. Shows authority over the physical realm. Life itself. You've healed the dead. now, But, but what, what do you got, though, really? It's just absurd what they're asking for. And you know what's amazing is that if you, if you look back at when he was born, in the temple, when Mary brings Jesus to be dedicated, an old guy named Simeon comes out and prophesies about Christ. And he says, he shall be for the rising and falling of many in Israel. And a sword will pierce your own soul, he tells Mary, and that this person, Jesus, would be a sign to be opposed. Think about that. That he would be a sign to be opposed. Which means even the Pharisees and the Sadducees in their opposition of Christ were part of a sign that was being demonstrated by God. Part of a fulfillment of prophecy that would point to the fact that Christ is who he said he would be. Well, in Luke chapter 16 verse 31, he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now what this is talking about is Jesus told a story about Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus went into heaven. The rich man went into hell. And the rich man is crying out for a couple things. He wants, first of all, Lazarus to take his finger, dip it in some water and cool his tongue to give him some relief of this torment that he's in. And the answer was given to him that no, that can't happen. Nobody can go back and forth between heaven and hell in that way. So then he said, Send Lazarus back to warn my family. Send him back to tell my brothers, because they're going to end up in the same place I am. So send Lazarus back. And he's given this answer No, they have Moses and the prophets. So, in other words, they have the Word of God to. Tell them what they need to know to point them to Christ, to give them to heaven. And his response was, but they won't listen to Moses. They won't listen to the Bible. But if somebody comes back from the dead, they will listen to that. That will get their attention. And the answer given back to him was, if they will not listen to Moses, if they will not listen to the prophets, if they will not listen to the Word of God, neither will they listen, even though somebody comes back from the dead. He was pointing out the same thing that we've already talked about. When you harden your heart toward God, a multitude of evidence just often makes you harden it harder. The evidence before us will either soften us and bring us to Christ, or it will harden us harder in our position and in our resolve to oppose Him. And that's exactly what happened in the lives of these Pharisees and Sadducees. They just became harder still with all of the evidence that was before them. Proverbs chapter 4, and verse 19 says, "...the way of the wicked is like a deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble." There's a darkness within inside of mankind that makes us shy away from the light. Just like when you're in a dark room and then somebody just all of a sudden flips on the lights and it hurts your eyes, and when mankind in his dark and depraved condition sees the light of Christ, it often causes him to recoil, to flinch, to draw back rather than to embrace. That's our natural order. It takes God Through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, shining that light into our hearts, drawing us to that light that brings us to the point of salvation. You know, in John chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10, it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. In John chapter 3, and this is right after, notice it's right after verse 16 that talked about God sending his son into the world because of his love, sending his son into the world to redeem the world so the world could be saved through him. But a couple of verses later, it says this is the reality of what happened. You see, he's saying that the natural propensity of man in our sinfulness, in our depraved state, is to withdraw from the light, to retreat from it. There's a, there's a blindness to mankind because of sin. Romans makes it very clear in chapter 1. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's exactly what these scribes and Pharisees were doing. They were suppressing the truth. They were trying to push it down, to get rid of it in their unrighteousness. And their unrighteousness had a very godly look to it in all their rules and traditions and regulations and, and their fake religion that Jesus pointed out was hypocritical. But Jesus would later tell them, you guys are blind If a blind lead a blind, you both fall into the ditch. At times, He would call them, and we'll even see some of it in Matthew, sometimes He calls them blind men. He calls them blind fools, blind guides. But in the darkness of their own depravity, they were blinded to Christ and their heart became harder Still. As we read on in Romans, it says in verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. He said, God, the nature of God and the presence of God has been obvious from the creation of the world. Just look around you. We can see the work of His hands. The heavens declare the glories of God. But he says, in our foolishness, mankind in His foolishness, in His darkness of thinking, in His blindness, will reject that and suppress the truth of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says that the natural man does not welcome or does not accept the things of God because they're spiritually discerned and we're spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. He's talking about people that refuse to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He says they're darkened. They're darkened in their understanding. They're blinded by the ignorance that is within them. It is very clearly, as John MacArthur explains, their eyes reject the evidence because their hearts reject the one who gives it. They are just like Voltaire that we started with that said, even if a miracle happens right in front of me in broad daylight with a thousand witnesses to see it, I would rather question my eyes. And he hardened his heart to his own demise. Well, that's what we see as we look at this point in Jesus' ministry as the leaders, hearts were hard toward Him and the multiplicity of evidence that pointed to Christ as who He was just hardened them all the harder. So Jesus at this point tells His disciples, you guys watch and beware. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Be careful with their teaching. And He's showing His disciples that there's a real schism happening here the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and Jesus, we're not headed the same direction. And that's going to be crucial as we come into next week's passages The disciples will be called on to recognize who Jesus is and make a decision. And it's then, it's next week, there's a passage coming right up where the first blunt message of the cross and the resurrection and the first teaching about the church begin based off of their profession as we head forward into that. As we're before God, and as we share the Gospel with other people, it shouldn't be surprising. Sometimes when you share the Gospel with people and they ask, well, why do you believe? And you share why you believe the things that you believe, given the evidence that is out there for the Gospel of Jesus Christ and how why we know these things are true. Some people will be softened by it. Other people that are hard are going to be hardened further. There's a lot of great books out there written. More Than a Carpenter, Case for Christ, Skeptic's Search for God. There's a lot of great books out there written to just show how much evidence there is that all these things are true. And i found that most of the time that I give one of those books to somebody else to read, and I always hope they read, I always pray that they'll read it, and I pray that it'll be a tool that God uses to help them come to Christ. And I like to try to talk to them about it later too. But I would have to say that my experience has been that most of the people that I give a book to don't end up too interested in that book. Not always does it result in a softening of the heart toward God. Sometimes it just locks them in just as much as before in their hardness before God.